Well, hello, everybody. I am so glad that you were able to join us for today's episode of the A Few of My Favorite Things podcast. Today, I am just so honored to have my latest guest for the show, Dr. Julie Williams. She is a professor at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. She got her PhD in mass communication from the University of Alabama, BA in history, English at Principia College in Elsa, Illinois, Master of, of Arts in Journalism from the University of Alabama. And she is the 2021 Cobre Award winner for Lifetime Achievement in Journalism History given by the American Journalism Historians Association. She has been a member of that group for over 25 years. And quite honestly, um, you can just tell that she knows her fair share about journalism history just by talking to her. But that's enough for me. I'm going to give it over to Dr. Williams. So how are you doing today, doctor? Oh, I'm, I'm doing fine here at the end of the summer trying to prepare for the start of a new school year. <laughs> hey, uh, that is very understandable just because, you know, I know with Samford, it's starting up on August 30th, um, where I'm at in Hattiesburg, Mississippi for the University of Southern Mississippi. It's starting up on August 23rd. It, school would have definitely started for both of us by the time this is up. But seriously, um, I can understand why you're trying to put in the last finishing touches for the fall 2021 semester. How are you looking forward to it? Well, you know, it, we're going partially back to normal. I know all of us has been through weird semesters. Um, last year, we did meet face-to-face at Samford. Everybody wore a mask, but we were socially distanced in hybrid classes, meaning we met essentially every other day. And on the off days, you sent the students home, I did, with uh, meaningful work. And, and, you know, oh, I'm having to think ahead to, to get the meaningful work out ahead of time. It taxed my brain. Anyway, so this year we're all meeting together um, and no more hybrid class and face-to-face. We are face-to-face, but we aren't having uh, – uh, we are wearing masks still until the Delta variant, we hope, passes through and is done. Anyway, uh, I'm looking forward to going back to sort of normal because I will not have to think ahead to get the assignment to the, uh, on the off day out. But, uh, you know, it would be nice to have it sort of back to normal if we could remember what normal is. And there's the big question. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to going back to normal and hopefully we'll, you know, uh, we'll be able to remember how to do that. <laughs> of course, uh, that is very understandable. It's definitely been an experience for really just most institutions that really since around March of 2020, um, the typical or orthodox college experience is something that's almost been foreign. So trying to transition back into something that resembles that is very welcome, but something that I think wisely will be instituted by most institutions with caution. So I'm looking forward to that as well. That's good. (laughs) How about you tell uh, the folks listening on just a little bit about what you do at Sanford? Well, let's see. I teach, um, I teach some journalism. I teach right now. I'm going to be teaching senior thesis, which I love. That's a lot of fun to teach, but I also teach what most colleges call freshman English. Now, Garrett, you knew it as UCCA, University Core Communication Arts. They're changing the name this year to University Core Rhetoric and University Core Seminar. And I just have to laugh at the new name Rhetoric because being a journalist, rhetoric is kind of a bad word. You know, oh, don't listen to that. It's just rhetoric, you know. So I have to school myself to realize that it means how you say it and how you write it, which, of course, is what, what we taught under the name CA when I taught you. Uh, but uh, so I teach, I've taught that course for a long time. 
and then the second semester or next semester, uh, you teach a, a seminar now called Core Seminar, where you essentially teach writing, but based in the professor's field of interest. So that I always have my students down in the archives, uh, reading old magazines and old newspapers and discerning themes and writing about them. And uh, for most of them, I think it's a lot of fun. I learn a lot from them because you could almost find some something interesting to you that I've never even heard of in these old publications. But anyway, so I'm, I'm starting up with a, essentially what I always tell people outside of the university is freshman English and senior thesis. So I have them coming and going, freshmen and seniors. Very, very interesting. And just as a point of information for the audience, uh, before I became a Golden Eagle at USM, I was at Samford University for my freshman year, and Dr. Williams was my UCCA or freshman English teacher my first semester of college. So I still remember that class fondly. I really do. And it's really just interesting to see that you are still enjoying teaching those classes and are finally able to teach some journalism classes as well, because that's something that I know you've wanted to kind of get back in the uh, game of being able to do consistently. So that's just great to hear. I've taught senior thesis for a while, and I just had a few years off from that, but uh, I'm going back into that. And oh, I love that. It's a long-term project. I mean, to work with these students you know, for essentially a couple months on the same big paper, but, oh, the sense of accomplishment when it's done, you know, like, oh, you know, they're thrilled. I am too. <laughs> and another element of what you were talking about was also for the seminar class, especially with its focus on media history. And obviously, as your uh, Cobre Award indicates, that is something that you are very invested and passionate about. But just for the folks who aren't as familiar with the concept of media history, can you please give a definition of it? Oh, yes. Well, media history, uh, to the American Journalism Historians Association, which has the word journalism in it, but we, we kind of take a big, broad view that almost anything that's mass-mediated can be studied as history. For instance, say a radio show or a TV show or movies or, you know, there, people come up with a lot of different things to study. But in my case, I collect old newspapers, and I have about a million of them under my bed. <laughs> and I bring them out and take them to the library. And our, our library has a bunch, too. So our, my students meet in a room right outside the archives, and I invite them to go into the archives and look at a magazine from 1760. And, oh, my gosh, it's like 12 issues, and it's real thick. Or look at some of my stuff. You know, I have a lot of uh, colonial-era newspapers, and usually they're really amazed what they read. Um, there's, they can find something that's unusual. I know a lot of them, for instance, get really interested in the runaway slave ads. We can actually find those online. But what's interesting to most of them is that, you know, we know that slaves had a really hard life working in the field and doing these obnoxious, hard, frustrating jobs, and they couldn't leave them. But then there are some that were running away, and they'll say, oh, he's a doctor. Oh, he, he's a diver. Oh, he's a boat pilot. And some of them get really interested in, wow, what did slaves do other than work in the field? Some of them had a lot of really high skills that, you know, nobody could, you know, obviously not everybody could do. And so that's been really a lot of fun for a lot of them to get a fuller picture. Now, these people were still enslaved. They could not run away. They weren't allowed to. That's why they were in the ad. But wow, some of them had some really important skills that they were, you know, like he'll probably come to your house and ask the doctor you're sick. He's probably my slave. You know, that kind of thing. Wow, that's so interesting, isn't it? It really is. It kind of just kind of goes to show that, uh, especially as it relates to um, just 
America, especially as it related to enslaved Africans. They weren't just on the fields um, picking cotton, essentially. They had a whole bunch of other roles and contributed to many different facets of society, especially like you indicated with, for instance, the realm of medicine and the, the realm of other, I guess, specialized occupations, but also in things such as music, especially with certain musical styles, certain musical genres, and even some instruments that they more or less uh, took with them from when they were um, stolen from Africa and basically kind of tooled into their own and basically made into their own. So yeah, uh, looking at that, especially from the lens of uh, media history is actually quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's really part of the fun of media history is to discern a theme like that and to trace it through. And you're right, a lot of them were quite musical and a lot of them were advertised as fiddle players. And I don't know if there was an equivalent uh, African instrument to a fiddle, but a lot of them were quite accomplished playing the fiddle, which, you know, was something that the European uh, owner, <laughs> European heritage owner actually, you know, knew about. So that they would, see, they would say he's probably making his living playing the fiddle, you know. Wow, that person was really musical and, you know, really gifted. And um, I, I just find it amazing. A lot of my students get off on that. And it is fun to see them light up and say, wow, this guy was a dancer. They're advertising this guy was a dancer. That's so interesting. I'm like, yeah, that's interesting, wasn't it? So, you know, if he was teaching dancing or, or what, but they would, they would comment that you'll probably notice he's a good dancer. That might be my slave. You're like, wow. What an amazing thing to know about somebody who, unfortunately, whose name we don't even know now. We might probably might know him as the name Tom, but we wouldn't know his last name. But we do know he was a dancer and a fiddler. You know, it's it's um, a real full picture, uh, and sadly, of people who are enslaved. But also, wow, some of these talents are beyond me. I can't play the fiddle. I'm <laughs> not a good dancer. You know, that kind of thing. It's it's You get this really uh, picture in full color. Of course, and that, that really is so interesting. And I guess also as it just relates to looking up uh, media history, one of the things that I found really interesting about what you've done is how you've kind of tied media history into your own family, especially as related to the Titanic. And this is kind of in relation to the fact that your great uncle, uh, Albert Caldwell, was on the Titanic when it crashed. Um, you even wrote a book about it called A Rare Titanic Family. Um, really a very interesting piece of work. And really, can you please explain that to the audience? Because I feel like that kind of adds even more to the discussion of media history, especially in the realm of that it can really be closer to home than you can even realize. Oh, yes. Uh, my great uncle was named Albert Caldwell. He was 26 in 1912 when he and his wife, Sylvia, and their infant son, Alden, all three survived the Titanic. And he lived to be 91. Um, he and Sylvia later divorced in 1930. And in 1934, he married my great aunt. So he was oh, 36. He married my great aunt. Sorry. Anyway, he was always my uh, great uncle. I you know, always knew him as that. And he loved to tell the story of the Titanic, which was unusual. I understand a lot of survivors didn't want to talk about it, but he loved to talk about it, spoke in public about it, and so on, considered it a public service. But I have enjoyed looking up newspaper coverage, not only of the Titanic in general, but also of him. I did spend a great deal of time looking up uh, rival newspapers in the same town that cover the Titanic. And you get such opposite opinions as to what happened as, you know, oh, the Titanic was rushing to beat a record. How stupid. It ran through the iceberg waters and didn't even pause because they, you know, were self-inflated with, with their, you know, invincibility and they, they crashed in the iceberg and they sank. 
Or the opposite in another newspaper from the same city would be the captain was known to be at a party and he was drinking and he was a drunk driver and the Titanic was one big old case of drunk driving and the captain ran into the iceberg. You know, we don't hear that one anymore. And, you know, which one is true? I don't know. At the time, that was the competing interest. But I've also enjoyed a reading about the Caldwell family in the press and they weren't prominent. They didn't make too many news articles, but I really got a big kick out of several that I found about them. And to give a clearer picture, one uh, talked about them um, being sent home from their, you know, going on sabbatical from their missionary work, and they called it furlough. On their furlough, well, they were not actually on furlough. They were actually fleeing their jobs, which I didn't know. He never said that. They kind of had uh, applied to go home five years before they were qualified to go. And at first, they were turned down by their mission. No, you can't leave Bangkok. You cannot go. They fought and they pleaded, and mainly they pleaded because Sylvia, the wife, had had a very scary medical diagnosis. And finally, reluctantly, the boss let them go. But within a week, he had changed his mind, and he telegraphed ahead to the missionary society that when they got to New York, they should be picked up, and she should be examined if she was found to be not sick, they would have to go back. I mean, they were really under some heavy pressure. Anyway, so I found one article of their arrival saying that they were on furlough and so on and so forth. Well, they weren't. They were actually fleeing their jobs. But notice they did not correct that. They didn't want anybody to to know that they were under some suspicion. And, uh, oh, I found another um, article about them traveling back to Illinois from New York where every Titanic survivor was giving a free, given a free train ticket wherever they wanted to go. So they were going to Illinois, and they stopped in Pittsburgh, and a relative came rushing over to see them and to shake their hand. But they also admired the cute little sleeping baby, their 10-month-old baby, who had been born in Siam. They admired that sweet little baby who was asleep, unwitting that he was now a celebrity. You know, it was very flowery language and very fun to read about them and just a little bit of insight as to the ordinary life of, you know, ordinary people. They weren't famous like Molly Brown or the captain of the Titanic, but they were, you know, here's where they got somebody rushed to meet them and everybody was ooing and I, oh, and word went around on the train that they were survivors. So everybody was coming up to shake their hand and, you know, kind of in awe, <laughs> you know, that they had survived. So it was really a nice little insight into their lives that I didn't have before. I have to admit that is really a very cool venture that you partook in and i really have to give my props to you that really is incredible <laughs> well thanks y you need to write one too now <laughs> you know i think i will uh one of these days uh maybe uh after you know undergrad and law school i think that will definitely be something that i will have on the to-do list i, I have no you. doubt i remember you in my freshman english class yes <laughs> i can see that in your future <laughs> especially as it relates to your uh, past students as well as even your current and future students. Um, how have you done your best to more or less relate to the importance of writing, the importance of, I guess, really just media and history in general to them in a way that can really just transcend the classroom and hopefully get deeper? Gosh, you know, that's a hard one because a lot of students come into freshman English, especially thinking, well, you know, I'm just taking this because I have to. But one of my favorite uh, assignments, which I think you did, uh, is to have them write a, a paper to solve a problem in their hometown 
And the purpose of the paper is to learn how to make an effective argument because an effective argument is not about yelling and screaming, but it's about doing uh, effective research. You know, what is the problem? What are the possible solutions? Who else has solved this problem in another town? And then also to make an argument where you concede that the other side has a good point and so on. And I try to impress this upon students that an argument it's not just a fight like you had with your roommate, you know, which nobody enjoys. They're not fun. And uh, what's fascinating to me is that um, several of them have actually solved the problem in their hometown. I forced them to interview someone, and there's another journalistic skill, but they have to interview someone. And some people interview uh, a friend or a parent, and I, I don't restrict them from that. But the ones who get brave and interview the mayor or a city council person often will have the idea picked up. And I have I've had a student had to visit uh, on Zoom, a city council meeting explained her solution for a dangerous um, turn into a park where kids were coming to play um, sand volleyball, beach volleyball, and, you know, kids were coming from other towns, and they would come roaring down this exit ramp and not realize there was a sharp turn and there was all this skidding, and she saw a very simple and elegant way to fix it, and they were so impressed with her idea that she had to tell it to the city council. Here she was, a freshman, and she was kind of embarrassed, I'm like, oh, you go, girl, that's really good. <laughs> you know, we've had several of those uh, where, where they, so that in the end, they see that writing and doing the research and the writing and making an argument that's oh, I don't know, calm and, and not just about I'm mad, uh, it, it sometimes gets, a, the, gets the work done. I mean, it, it actually has a good value. It has a, an important, uh, this is how we get things done sort of effect. Kind of going on to the realm of the other students you teach, especially seniors, uh, what is it like trying to interact with them, especially as they write their thesis? And kind of how do you kind of tie in media history and kind of just journalistic practices in general when they do that? big piece of work that's really just one of the biggest things that they probably will write in college. Yes, it is. And and the thesis is um, what we call scholarly or original research. And there are several um, genres you can write in, like you have to do your research in a scholarly manner. You're not just allowed to go out and interview people like my freshmen have been asked to do. Um, for instance, you may have to, um, if you wish, this depends on their, their general um, whole personality and approach, like they might do a survey, they might survey people in a very formalistic way, you know, with a something they send out and has to be sent back. They might, um, you know, do a content analysis where they actually analyze what's in the press. You know, we, we believe that the press is, say, very um, liberal, but if you really define what is liberal and what is conservative, you come out with about 50-50 which I think is what the press would strive for, you know, a balance. Uh, anyway, so, but then some of them look into media history. If they're looking at something, like I had a student who was interested in World War II as a topic and said, what can I do about that? And I said, you know, she said she was interested in ads in World War II. Well, a lot of scholars have studied ads in World War II, but I said, why don't you look at the student newspaper during World War II to see their ads? Oh, she just really was excited because she had tapped into the youth market of that era. Now notice there's no social media. This is how advertisers reached young people. And so she discovered that during the height of World War II, you know, the young women weren't looking for a husband because those husbands were already overseas fighting. So suddenly there were ads to girls that weren't going to get married the minute they got out of school. You know, there were ads for uh, wax and waves, the women serving in the Army. There were ads for girls who might need to take on a career like a secretarial career or a store clerk or something. 
But as we got closer and closer to the end of the war, she could see that the confidence was building that the world would come to an end, even though it hadn't yet, because suddenly there were ads for, say, diamond engagement rings and washing machines and, uh, you know, dryers and things that you would use in your home. So suddenly these girls were expecting their, you know, their man to come back from Europe and, or, or the South <laughs> Pacific, and they were going to, you know, follow a more traditional path of that era. And so it was really, she could say, she, she said she could see the pattern of what young women had to do or were expecting to do shift and then go back to, um, something more traditional. And I thought that was so interesting. And, um, a lot of them are that way. If they're looking at something in the past, they can usually find something, um, remarkable. I had one student one time who, who was saying, well, I, I don't know what I want to write about. Maybe I want to write about, you know, young women who are influenced by advertising to uh, have a, a um, you know, anorexia or something like that. And I said, okay, well, you're going to have to, you know, uh, to survey people and you're going to have to just stumble upon people who have anorexia because you can hardly go up to somebody and say, are you anorexic? Um, do you think you have a, you know, a group of people? So we were trying to work through the issues. And so I was, I was talking one day about some of the, you know, fun things you could do in a thesis, and she just lit up on the front row, and she raised her hand, and I said, what, what is it? She said, wait, do you mean I can actually, like, study the Mary Tyler Moore show for my thesis? And I said, sure. <laughs> so she was <laughs> so excited because she looked at Mary Tyler Moore, the, the uh, actress Mary Tyler Moore, who played Laura Petrie in the 1960s, a typical housewife, who was very restricted in what she could do. She couldn't have her own bank account. She was always at home. She was very happy and also very sharp and smart and usually lorded it over her husband, who was Dick Van Dyke. But uh, then the same actress played Mary Tyler Moore on the Mary Tyler Moore Show 10 years later, and she was depicted this time as a single girl, a career girl, who was in charge of her own life. So she was able to make a direct comparison of the changing roles of women based on this, these two roles played by the same person. So you weren't even looking at a, conf a conflict between two different actors playing the same person and uh, playing the same, playing roles. It was the, the same person playing the two different roles. So she was really excited about it and was just thrilled. And, and it was a very fun, she really got into it. So part of that um, role is, uh, in, as teaching thesis is to get people to find something that really rings their bell, that makes them really happy and some of which, of course, media history, which makes me happy, too. But I don't push anybody into that if they're not interested. They, some of them have other things that they're fascinated with. And, you know, you kind of get this prickly feeling. Your hair stands on end when you've hit the right one with a student, no matter what the genre is. It's like, oh, this is it. You got it. You know, that's always fun. That's a good thing to look forward to. I remember you saying a quote, and it's when something like this. I see journalism as the day-to-day -day record of history, and as such, believe journalism and history are intimately related. How would you say that could be absorbed by, say, not only just your everyday common American or common citizen, but also just by people who are making journalism history now? Well, that is, I agree with that statement that I made. I thank you for finding it. Uh, I think they are related because the day-to-day -day writing of history has to happen somewhere. And I know that technically history is the looking back and digesting and putting in context what happened. But when I was a reporter for most of the 1980s, I worked at a small town newspaper. You know, when I would write something down, even if it was just the school board, you know, what the school board did, I would think this is the day-to-day -day record of what went on today. And I could perceive that that would be important to somebody in the future who needed to know, whether they needed to know to see what the original concept was for the policy, you know, 10 years out, 
or whether it was 100 years ago and they 100 years future and we were 100 years ago and they wanted to see how things were done back in the good old days you know it, it's just kind of a it's to me and it's an amazing thing to have a daily record of what went on and to treasure that daily record flaws and all you know maybe misunderstandings or maybe even misspelled names but hopefully not but uh you know the idea <laughs> is that you're looking back at the raw material and i guess i i do enjoy as a journalist or i did enjoy i guess uh producing the raw material uh for what would later become well crafted and thought through and put in context stories in fact it was so amazing garrett uh, when I was a, the editor of my little newspaper in Sampson County, North Carolina, uh, we ran out of headline tape. Now, at the time, you, you didn't have a desktop publisher. You actually printed things out on tape and glued them into place with wax. And we ran out of headline tape. We just hadn't ordered any. And we're like, uh-oh. So we called our sister paper in Lumberton, North Carolina, and said, hi, do you have any headline tape that we can send somebody down there and use? And they said, no, we're being held hostage right now. We're like, what? And so uh, we sent um, wow. a reporter down there because uh, the local uh, Native American tribe had wanted to protest some unkindness toward them in various genres of the city, not just the newspaper, but they found that the newspaper was the easiest building to take over. So they came and held, held the whole newspaper staff hostage for some hours. And so I don't think we ever got our headline tape. I don't know what we did, but we did have a reporter down there covering it. Well, Many years later, I'm reading a scholarly article, which would be like someone's senior thesis, a scholarly article published in a scholarly journal, and it was about this takeover of this newspaper. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, been written up now as history. You know, it was 20 years later, but there was the um, uh, the examination of that incident in a scholarly journal. And I thought, well, I've always said that the day-to-day -day record is what becomes history, and there you go. That was something I was, you know, sort of tangentially a part of. So it was kind of amazing. That's really interesting to see that kind of occur and happen. Do you feel like kind of the same mistakes and errors that we see in journalism historically are being repeated today just because people just aren't aware that we're not just trees, but we're in a forest? I do think that, and I'm not sure I'm going to answer your question exactly how I intended, but I was just thinking as you said it, my goodness, I've had a lot of interest in reading uh, press accounts and hearing them on the radio and seeing them on social media and so on, uh, where there's doing, they've done a retrospective on the 1918 flu pandemic. Now that we're in another pandemic, almost exactly 100 years later, uh, the coverage of that pandemic really informs us today. And it's always regrettable to me that people aren't able to read the old coverage in the past. I, I remember one situation where it was the end of World War One when this flu pandemic happened, and the soldiers seemed to have brought it back with them. And there were supposed to be great parades and, you know, people out waving the flag and confetti and stuff for the returning soldiers, which is a lovely idea. I mean, certainly I can understand the sentiment, but one of the – I'm going to – I think it was on the West Coast. I'm going to say Seattle, but I'm not sure. Uh, thought they, they got into the science of this flu and they realized that this could be a problem. So they canceled the parade and people were disgruntled, but um, but they, you know, they canceled the parade and they answered. They said, because we don't want anybody more to get the flu. Whereas in Philadelphia, everybody was was couldn't wait for that parade and they were so excited. And so they had to parade and it followed with a huge wave of this flu and a lot of suffering, a lot of death. 
And so that someone today, I mean, not today, it was last year, but somebody um, in today's time asked me, oh, I wish that they hadn't canceled whatever it was. Maybe it was a, um, an outdoor or a festival kind of event. I wonder why people are so afraid and, and uh, cancel it. I said, well, I think like in the 1918 flu situation, they're trying to avoid a lot of suffering, needless suffering. We don't know if anybody would have caught this horrible COVID at this festival, but I know from the past that people tried to avoid this great suffering, and I told the story of these two cities, and the person said, oh, I see that. And it was interesting that the perspective provided by the old article, just me quoting it, made a person give up the resentment a little bit. I mean, I know none of us likes anything being canceled, and we don't like this on virus and wish it would go away. But um, it was there was this sense that she gained a perspective by seeing that cities wrestled with this 100 years ago and the one who opted to go ahead with the um, with the, the event, you know, wound up with a lot of suffering and a lot of death. And it was not, you know, not anything, people didn't want that to happen again. So in a way, history provides that perspective so that we can, oh, I don't know, stop kicking ourselves or at least accept for the moment that things have to be a certain way. And so I was really pleased with that, um, that understanding of media history that helps somebody in the present day. No one seems to contextualize it in the way of, hey, this is what happened 100 years ago. This is what happened when they did B instead of A. We should be doing A instead of B. No one has really done a good job of that. Yeah, sometimes and you, you do hear some people doing it, but it, it seems that a lot of things that we do in the media, and I understand this too, are rushed because of the deadline. We want to get it out first. We want to get it out before anybody else. And that usually tends to, um, oh, I don't know, shorten or foreshorten the, uh, <laughs> the uh, context. You know, you kind of just give a brief brush over. And sometimes I think we could use a, a lengthier comparison to the past so we can learn. And it, it also kind of makes you think about some other things as well. Um, I know with a lot of other pr professions, there's accreditation. Uh, there's accreditation for the medical field, accreditation for the legal field. Do you feel like there in some way should be accreditation for being a journalist? Why or why not? That is a good question. I know it comes up a lot. And I I don't know that there is because uh, that there is a need for it or a a, a correct answer for that to say yes, because a lot of people enter the journalism field who come to it from other areas. They are gifted at writing, but they haven't, you know, say had a major in journalism. That would be me. Uh, they're also, you know, gifted in the technical aspects. They, they run a beautiful camera. They take beautiful photographs. When I started in the press back in 1981, it was a different landscape. Nobody could do this on their own. Nobody could type something in on the social media and just do it. And nowadays you are able to do that. And I don't know if accreditation would be a bonus in that regard. It may well, again, it's something I don't have the answer to. I know that at one time, um, well, I'll go back in media history. When the very first journalism school was established, it was right after the civil war at Washington college and now Washington and Lee, because Robert E. Lee took over as the president of that college. And he had had so many, um, bad reports in the Civil War with the reporters who were not trained and not knowledgeable, just writing anything they could think of. And he thought, boy, people really need some training in journalism. So he started a journalism school, and he was laughed to scorn because 100% of the reporters out there had not had journalism school, and they didn't think that was it was needed. And so when he died, the, the um, journalism program died with him until many years later. 
uh, when these, this kind of course of study was revived. But the idea is, you know, that that is one option is to train people the correct way. But the sentiment that you don't have to be trained the correct way, that you have a talent in some aspect of it, that you can go into it and be successful is also true. So, yeah, I don't know. Accreditation, no accreditation, I don't know. It's a good question. Um, with the advent of, I don't know, some of these uh, a slanted media where they their stated purpose is, okay, we're going to boost one party over the other. We've, I feel like we lost control of journalism because for many decades before that, journalism was supposed to be an attempt at being objective. Now, there you can argue philosophically that no one is objective, but if you tried to be objective, you know, rather than just saying I'm taking one side over the other, then you, I think you had a more... Um, Oh, a trustworthy product. However, as a historian, a media historian, I have to look back to the uh, 1789 to about 18, well, about eight, about about the dawn of the Civil War, uh, except for in New York where they did something else. But uh, you were in the party press period where every party did have its own newspaper and they funded the newspaper. Now, of course, they didn't have the other forms of media because they didn't exist. But, you know, that's why you had newspapers called the Whig or the Republican or the Democrat and occasionally the independent, meaning I'm not funded by a party. And we got through that, too. And historians now are saying, okay, that helped this group of former colonists who were formerly under a monarchy and who knew no other government but a monarchy help them realize that it's about me, that this party stuff, that they want you to join a party and so on, it's about you. You really are part of this. And so some historians are now crediting that with really accelerating the formation of, um, of the country as we know it. And that's an interesting thought, too. So sometimes I get real frustrated with the slanted news that just has one idea in mind and the people spreading misinformation and uh, frustrated to no end. But then I remember, okay, we got through the party press before, and I know we are kind of in the same thing now. Don't say that I like it. I can't say that it's fun. But I know that it had value when we look back at it. So that gives me a little hope. I'm not really sure where it's all going to go. But anyway, that's um, sometimes it's very frustrating being in that situation. Of course, very true. And as a last question, what's a good news source or just maybe a, a plethora of news sources that you would recommend looking to? Maybe a, a steady diet of NPR, I don't know. But what would you recommend? <laughs> That's funny. I do listen to NPR a lot. Uh, I, I like having the radio on when I'm doing things or driving. And NPR is very good. They do try to do, um, you know, they're, they're one of their major shows is called All Things Considered. And I think they really do try to consider all things. Uh, and, and so that's nice. And I would just advise people to subscribe to their local newspaper, even if it means online or on paper, whatever, and read that because that's a good way to get your local uh, knowledge of what's going on, and I think gives most people a broader perspective than just what they might read on social media. I think a lot of people think, well, it's on social media. I don't need to pay the money for the paper. But actually, you're getting um, some some better curated material. Somebody who's has had look at that and say, okay, this is worthy of publication, or this is not worthy of publication, that kind of thing, so that when it comes up worthy, uh, it, it really is. Uh, you know, it, it may not be the most perfect story in the world. It may be about some little local happening, like a local band playing in a local club, but that's how you find out about it anyway. You know, so it's, it's a lot of, to me, a very valuable resource. Of course, you know, I worked in the local press in the 1980s, but it was really a valuable uh, reflection of the community and of what 
important people thought or what important people advised in your community. And that is, to me, very helpful and very eye-opening. Dr. Williams, this is really just some great things to think about. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. This is just really great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to the latest episode of the A Few of My Favorite Things podcast. We hope that you enjoyed the show. And as always, stay prosperous. Stay prosperous.